Welcome to episode number 102, Empathy Gap. I am your host, Damon Soka. I apologize that I'm a little late this week with the podcast. From my voice, you can tell that I've been a little sick. Hopefully, my voice will hold out today. Now, I appreciate all those who share this podcast and those who listen. Word of mouth is really the only method by which this podcast gets the word out. I appreciate all those who really spread the word on their social media apps, their friendships, and social groups. So today, we are going to explore the idea of what is referred to as the empathy gap in psychological circles. The easiest way to explain the empathy gap is to understand what emotional states can do to our reasoning and decision-making process when we are under extreme emotional stress. The empathy gap is really the inability of the mind to comprehend one's emotional state and one's actions while in a completely separate emotional state. Now, I realize that the theory is a little vague by definition, but I think an example will help clear things up. Now, my example story is found in Luke, and it is about Peter's betrayal of Christ. During the Last Supper and after the institution of the sacrament, the Lord, knowing what will befall Simon Peter and attempting to help him through the conversation, the conversion process, states to him the following, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now Simon, being like most of us, felt a little rebuked at the idea that he was not fully converted to the Lord. And he says this in return, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. Now, psychologists at this point call Simon's emotional state a cold state, meaning that in this normal, comfortable, intimate setting, Peter fully believes what he says. This is because Peter, or Peter's mind, cannot foresee a moment when his emotional state might be significantly different and where he might deny the Christ. Of course, later at the house of the high priest in the courtyard, Peter has, in this instance, come to see what is happening with the Savior. Peter desperately wants to know what is happening with his friend, the Savior. But he is also somewhat of a fugitive, as he is associated with a person who's been arrested. He fled with the other apostles when Christ was arrested, and so we can see that he has a heightened emotional state where he is concerned for his life and imprisonment, and really for anyone recognizing him. So he is trying to be as obscure as possible while still finding out, of course, what's happening with the Savior. Now, of course, we know that three individuals do recognize him as a possible disciple associated with the Savior. Peter, of course, denies Christ to all three individuals. I'm going to assume that Peter's intention is that he does not desire to become a witness and have to testify at the trial, but honestly, we have no idea. What we do know is that Peter was in what is called psychologically a hot state, meaning he has moved from this normal emotional state at the Last Supper to a heightened one where he is very concerned for his life. And in this new emotional state, he denies Christ three times, of course, as dictated by the Savior not too many hours before. Now, we know the rest of the story, how he wept bitterly and learned a great lesson about his own personal empathy gap. Certainly, the Savior understood this empathy gap in Peter and fully wanted him to understand it as well. The empathy gap, then, is the inability for Peter to predict he would deny the Christ 
when he was placed under certain emotional strains. Meaning, we as human beings have a very difficult time predicting what we would do or not do under emotional stress and strain when we are not under that pressure. Now, I don't think that this is much of a revelation to those who have ever gotten mad enough to lose control a little, but it has some large implications for those of us who suffer. We all possess what are called empathy gaps in our lives. We plan out exactly what we will do in life in particular situations, but we don't take into account those strong emotions that might rise to the surface and that it will change our decision-making processes. And we change how we perceive the moment and how we will also act. Now, someone fighting panic attacks may say under a normal emotional state that they are going to stay at the social function and work through it when the panic attack strikes. And yet the moment comes and they are again on the outside of the building, barely breathing and trying to regain some emotional composure. Someone who is fighting depression might make plans to exercise every day as part of their management of the illness. And yet actually exercising when exhaustion hits and the brain has no desire pushes them to stay in bed. Now, there are countless ways that our empathy gap can appear and cause us issues. However, understanding that we have these empathy gaps in our measurements can be very helpful in addressing them. Now, the first thing we must do when we openly discover our empathy gaps is to understand that these gaps come naturally to the human body, meaning we don't act against what we said we would do purposefully. Strong emotional states that are found in depression, anxiety, even bipolar, cause what I have discussed previously as a shift of reality. And truly, we do not think, act, or feel our reality in the same way when we are in an episode. It is extremely difficult for us to model in our minds what it will be like when we are in the midst of a depression episode, or an anxiety attack, or even a mania high. And this is true even when we've had several of them. All of us who have suffered have felt that moment of decision where we said what we would do, but just can't get out of bed or out of the house or out of that moment to do it. Our rational mind says yes, and our emotions, strong emotions, say definitely no. And nine times out of ten, we go with what we feel. Now then, of course, we feel guilty for not doing what we said we would, and that only adds further stress to our illness. The distance between our rational sense of what we have committed to accomplish and our physical inability to accomplish it due to our illness creates a great deal of stress and emotional distress in our lives that really is neither valuable nor helpful to our management. The more that we ignore the existence of these empathy gaps, the greater the problem we can create for ourselves and for our future. Now, the second thing we need to do when to help ourselves with this disconnect and reduce our emotional stress is to address the empathy gap directly and avoid getting into the yes I can, no I can't guilt trap. This is going to involve far more than just understanding what we can and can't do in our episodes, although that is very important. We must understand what is driving the yes I can ignorance, meaning what is causing us to say yes when we have experiences with our mental illness telling us that we are not, well, we are likely to fail. We're not likely to accomplish the task. Now, I would like to say that we are eternally optimistic, and that drives us, but more often, truly, it is the social pressures of the world we live in. 
and the lack of understanding that mental illness truly does affect our ability to act and to act with proper intent. Now, concerning this social pressure, the world wants measurable, definitive, outcomes-based action. It is often unconcerned with how we feel about the outcome or even the means by which something is accomplished. Now, they are certainly not concerned. They are certainly not concerned that we might have a serious form of depression, anxiety, or bipolar. And if they are, it is more about maintaining the numbers and what effects mental illness might have upon their outcomes. This means that we are consistent that we consistently have social pressures applied and implied with those things we are to accomplish as part of our social groups. Now that includes work, church, family, and even our marriages. Every social group requires some form of input, and often that effort put in for the group is actually part of being in the group. Most social groups do a very good job of pointing out failures and keeping individuals and guarding individuals within their boundaries, making sure that the individual actions of everybody is monitored. Now, I personally don't necessarily disagree with these pressures, although some people might. I think that it's part of being in a social group. They keep us on track. Pressure can be helpful to keep us motivated and thinking beyond ourselves. If you want to lose weight, you get somebody to do it with you. So often we refer to these pressures as peer pressure. That term has over over time gained, let's say, a negative attribute to it. We look at peer pressure as the instigator for actually many of life's problems and questionable opportunities. However, social pressure can also be encouraging, loving, kind, forgiving, and actually very helpful to us in our lives. Peer pressure need not be evil, and encouragement in the right way is really what being part of a gospel family or a social group is meant to be. However, we as human beings allow social pressure to take on forms that are not positive or helpful to anyone. Uh, the Doctrine and Covenants discusses this in depth and has several verses dedicated to it in section 121 that discuss the idea of positive peer pressure and what is effective and appropriate social involvement in someone's life. It also discusses that human nature does not tend to drift towards these more celestial methods of social pressure, but rather reduces itself to what is referred to as unrighteous dominion, meaning that celestial methods of social pressure, the love and kindness and forgiving, are more difficult to accomplish, take greater time, and often do not produce the quick outward results as desired. Unrighteous dominion actually does provide for more predictable outcomes, but does not provide for celestial development that comes from appropriate pressures. Now, while I'm not a psychologist, I believe that these social pressures applied in, applied in a, inappropriately seem to cause a great deal of the issues with my own personal empathy gap. What I can accomplish while I am not within the boundaries of an episode is certainly far more than when I am, but I know that the world does not understand my illness. And to get a mental illness free pass in this world is simply not going to happen. I know there will be consequences when I don't get something done, at least in the social pressure sense. I know that people really don't understand how someone can go from very capable to almost incapable of the same action or interaction within just a short time frame, without any physical evidence of the change. So I will say yes when I know that I am probably unlikely to be able to accomplish the task. 
and I feel guilty when I can't accomplish it. My why is probably not much different than most people's or others. I don't want to be seen as incapable, unable, or a mediocre member of the social group or my relationships. I know that I am supposed to say yes when I'm asked to serve, and so I do. But this does create a terrible empathy gap where I am saying yes to social pressures when there is a probability of no. Now, the main reason for reducing our empathy gaps, these big gaps, is that they are serious trouble when we desire to manage our illness. They can cause enormous amounts of stress to the point of what Peter experienced as bitter tears. That level of stress becomes fuel to an already out-of-control wildfire. One of the best things anyone can do to better manage one's illness is to reduce the stress and the stresses of peer pressure. Peer pressure is one of the most difficult things to overcome because it is not some obscure outside force. These people are the people right next to you, those who love you, those who want the best for you, want you to succeed in life. But in the same breath, they are often the individuals who create such pressures in our lives. We want so much to please them, and yet at times we do need to pull back from our mountain of responsibilities so that we are in control of our illness, not our illness in control of us. Now, I can promise you that if you don't slow down, as you know, the illness will do it for you. Knowing how and when to say no and to say yes has been for me probably the most difficult part of my management. I think I've mentioned that before. This has been no truer than it when it comes to my wife and my family. I have always wanted to say yes and be able to fulfill my responsibilities as husband, father, and of course, as a church member. I like the reward of good hard days, being with my family, good hard days work and being with my family. And yet those very desire, and yet those very desires, and they are good desires, have at times were brought, provided for some deeply troubling episodes. So what can I do or one do to really better manage these pressures? Now I have three basically we'll call them helpful hints. But the reality is, is that we must truly understand what our empathy gaps entail and really work directly with each of them. Now, my helpful hints are first, involve the Lord in everything you do and allow him opportunity to comment. If you have great desires to go and do something, but you have questions as to whether your illness is going to allow it, then the Lord should probably be your first call. Second, involve those around you in helping you not to overcommit. My wife and children tease me regularly about it, but they are very good at helping me keep myself in check. My wife is an absolute angel at this technique, and she checks me at every moment. Now, my current mental illness is not as problematic as it used to be, but my other autoimmune illness is. And if I don't keep my autoimmune illness within certain boundaries, physical boundaries, Depression and anxiety are never far behind for me. My wife has a wonderful perspective of what I can do and cannot do, and she's able to more rationally provide what I call counter-peer pressure so that I don't go beyond what I should do. Now, this relationship with my wife and our communication has actually been one of the most powerful tools that the Lord has for me to deal with my illnesses. Without her help and communication, I doubt that I would be anywhere close to managing both of my illnesses. Three, once you make a choice not to do something, then choose not to be guilty about it. If you have made the decision with the best information you have, then don't worry about it. Okay, I know, 
that it might feel impossible not to feel guilty, especially during these episodes of anxiety and illness. But do your best to put it out of your mind. One of the most important techniques that will provide the greatest benefit in your life is being able to put the past in the past and keep it there. This takes time and effort, and at first it's going to feel like you're not making any progress. But as you work at it with the Lord's help, over time you will get good at pushing those thoughts out, even when your feelings of self-worth and depression and anxiety aren't where they should be. We may not be able to change our feelings during an episode, but we certainly can push certain thoughts from our mind. Now, there is so much more to be said about that, about this subject and many others. But for today, I hope that you will be able to better see these empathy gaps in your life and what you can do better to manage them. And may the Lord bless you to keep you in his arms safely. And as always, do your part so that he can do his. Until next week.